Good morning. I hope that you're doing well, that you've had a good week, and that this morning you're gathered around your screens prepared to hear the word of the Lord in a spirit of attentiveness and uh, eagerness and expectation of how the Holy Spirit will work in you through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Locating your Bibles this morning, once more, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews and the first chapter. And like last week, I'm going to read the first few verses of this chapter and use them as something of a springboard uh, from which to, uh, to leap into the subject of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the prophet, priest, and king of his people. This morning, we're going to be thinking particularly about Jesus as priest. And not only are we going to be thinking about the, uh, the, the theological truth of Jesus as priest, but we're going to be thinking about the practical implications for us as believers, as a local church, who believe that Jesus is priest. So read with me from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's go to the Lord in prayer just now. Great God and most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. We thank you that you have given us not only your written word, but your incarnate word, Jesus the Christ. And we pray that as we, um, as we learn about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, that today we would see the beauty of his priesthood, his indeed great high priesthood, his everlasting priesthood, and that we would see what that means for us. Father, we pray that you would change us and that you would lead us deeper into your truth and the knowledge and experience of truth in Jesus so that we may be more faithful and fruitful by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed one. There were three who were anointed in ancient Israel under the Old Covenant. Prophets, priests, 
and kings. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is each of these simultaneously. He is the great prophet, priest, king of his people. But as we break that down, it's helpful to think of those different aspects in separation so we can more fully grasp what that means. Last week, we looked at what it means for Jesus to be prophet. Next week, we'll look at, Lord willing, what it means for Jesus to be king. And today, we think about what it means for Jesus to be priest. To say that Jesus is priest is, first of all, to say that Jesus represents us to God. There is a difference between being a prophet and being a priest that revolves around precisely this point of detail. A prophet represents God to the people. A priest represents the people before God. And there are different aspects of this work. We, we do read it in chapter 1, verse 4. It's said as almost um, a, a passing point of detail, but it is very important. After making purification for sins, we read in verse 3. A priest does precisely that. He, he makes purification for sins. And uh, we read more about that in chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, where we, we, we see Jesus described in the same language as the priests of the Old Covenant, who would enter into the tabernacle or would enter into the temple, and there they would offer sacrifices. The, the blood of goats and Calves would be spilled there on the altar and the blood would be sprinkled in various places throughout the room, even within the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. But we, we read of Jesus Christ when he appeared, chapter 9, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. And he's speaking now about the presence of God himself, Jesus entering into the heavenly presence of the Lord, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls, blood that was shed in mass quantities in the tabernacle and in the temple of ancient times, if that blood and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus represents us to, to God. 
uh, in so doing, he makes purification for our sins because we cannot enter God's presence, because we are stained by our sin, because we are, are, are covered in sin and in unrighteousness, we require a representative. But Jesus is that representative. Jesus enters into the presence of God, having on the cross washed away our sins. He purifies our sins. Those who believe in him know that our sins are washed away. But even as he represents us to God um, uh, and, and so uh, offers uh, purification for us, we see also that Jesus offers propitiation for us. Chapter 2, verse 17 says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is um, a big word. It's an unfamiliar word to most people, but it is a very important word and is filled with meaning. Propitiation is something that is directed toward God. It is a, while as purification is about us washing away our sins, propitiation is about God satisfying the good demands of his justice. Because we have rebelled against the high king of heaven, committing treason against the creator of the universe, we have to pay a penalty. We are told that all have sinned. We are told that sin has consequences. The wages of sin is death. But this, this message of propitiation is that Jesus paid the wages. Jesus paid it all. And so Jesus on the cross gives his life as a sacrifice to satisfy the righteous and good demands of God and his justice. And having satisfied justice, having paid the price for our sins, he turns his attention to us and washes us so that not only can he bring God to us on more favorable terms, but he can bring us to God, not to experience eternal justice in the form of judgment, but eternal justice in the form of joy because someone else has paid the price. Jesus represents us to God, and thereby he fulfills the, uh, the, the, the office of priest. We read it in chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he fulfills the office of priest. He fulfills the function of priest. We know that as chapter 5 verse 4 says, no one takes this honor for himself. Only when called by God, just as Aaron was, 
So Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the eternal son of God, and we talked about what it means for Jesus to be the eternal son last week, but the eternal son of God is appointed for a particular incarnational ministry as Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh, Jesus offers sacrifices for sins. And by so doing, we see he makes purification for sins, as chapter 1, verse 3 says. And we see also that, as chapter 2, verse 17 says, he makes propitiation for sins. He satisfies God's justice, and he secures our joy by washing us. Not only, though, do we see that Jesus represents us to God, thereby fulfilling the office and the function of priests, but Jesus represents us to God better than anyone else. Jesus represents us to God better than any priests that have come before him. Jesus, as priest, Indeed, as great high priest, stands above all priests, unique and distinct, not least because he is fully God. Back to chapter 1, the first three verses with which we began articulate this very clearly. That, that God has spoken to us by his son. And this is a letter to Hebrews. And in the Hebraic mind, sonship is not about inferiority within a hierarchy, but rather sonship is about essential equality. He has spoken to us by his son. When Jesus referred to himself as son, the Jews picked up stones to kill him because he made himself equal to God. He's appointed heir of all things uh, and is the one through whom also he created the world. Everything belongs to him. And indeed, everything was made through him. Without him, nothing that has been made was made. And the scriptures say that in John chapter 1. And the only logical inference that can be made from that is that Jesus is not made, but rather he is the maker. He is not created, but as the eternal son, he is indeed the creator. We're told that he's the radiance of the glory of God, radi radiance that has always radiated because the glory has always shone. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, a nature which is eternal. And to be the exact imprint of an eternal nature is to be eternal. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, something that can only be said of God himself. Jesus is fully God. He is above all people. He is above all angels. He is above all powers and principalities. That's, that's who Jesus is. That's our priest. That's the one who represents us. 
Someone who not only knows justice and experiences justice, but knows it perfectly and in fact is the embodiment of it. Someone who knows God's justice so well is required to represent us so well. And only Jesus could do that because he's fully God. But not only is Jesus fully God and therefore better than any priest before him and better than any priest after him, but Jesus is also fully man. That is a truth that is um, uh, clarified uh, throughout uh, later chapters. In chapter 2, for example, we are told that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He's a son, but he has to be made a servant. He is, a, he, he is the exact imprint of God's nature and the radiance of God's glory, but he has to humble himself and be made in not only the form of a servant, but in the very likeness of people, indeed like his brothers in every respect, so that he can faithfully represent us. He couldn't represent us as God. As, as God, he could only judge us. But as priest, high priest, Jesus, he justifies us. Verse 18, for he himself has suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our help is rooted not only in the deity of Christ, that he is God, but in the humanity of Christ, that he is miraculously and mysteriously and simultaneously fully man. This continues in chapter 4 where we read in verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We are told that because of this, verse 2 of chapter 5, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now that's interesting. That's, that, that actually is said of high priests in general, every high priest who came before him. And of those high priests, it is said of them that they had to offer sacrifices for their sins as well as the sins of the people. But he's already said that Jesus sacrifices for us, but he doesn't have to sacrifice for others because though he was tempted, he was without sin. He's perfect. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, though he's perfect, he still adopts this form of weakness. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries, with tears to him who was able to save him from death. And yet he's praying that before he himself goes to death and dies, not only as priest, but as sacrifice. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he, although he is a son, and therefore in, in the scheme of what Hebrews is saying, 
He was obedient. He knew obedience. He was eternally obedient, forever, forever perfect and in consistency and continuity with who God is and what God is like. No deviation from the nature of God. Yet as man, without sin, he has to learn obedience. Praying against death and yet going to death. And offering himself up to die. Being made perfect. Now being the complete package. Not only the priest. But the sacrifice. Once for all. He became the source of eternal salvation. To all who obey him. So it's good news for Jesus. To be our priest. He represents us to God. And he does so better than anyone else before or since. He purifies us and he propitiates God. He washes away our sin. He turns away God's wrath and justice. He is fully God. So he knows justice. He knows righteousness. He is perfect and good in every way. And so without sin, he's fully man. So he's tempted, besieged by weaknesses, able to identify with us in our human experience, able to truly empathize with us and to minister deep help to us. But what does that mean? There's so much more that I could say about Jesus being priest. Really, this whole letter focuses on that aspect of Christ's anointing. There's doubtless some of you already familiar with Hebrews, maybe a bit confused by certain elements. You might have been hoping for me to dig into Melchizedek and uh, to, to unpack all of that. One of these days, I would love to, to preach through Hebrews verse by verse. But at the moment, I want to introduce you to the basics. And uh, if you want to find out about Melchizedek, you can read Hebrews and you can study the scriptures and the Holy Spirit will help you to know what that's all about. But for now, I want to move into what this means for us. Jesus is priest, and that's a glorious truth. But what is the impact of truth? Jesus himself said that those who seek the truth will know the truth, but he did not leave it at that, some sort of intellectual nicety. But he said the truth will set you free. To what are you freed if you know Jesus as priest? To what are you liberated if you know Jesus as priest? All throughout Hebrews, there are different things said following on from this glorious truth of Christ's priesthood. But one which is uh, very frequently mentioned, and so we'll start there, is draw near. Because Jesus is priest, because as the fully God, fully man, 
perfect representative of his people who propitiates God and purifies sins, you can enter into the presence of God. You can draw near those who were far because we sinned against God, because we rebelled against him in thought, word, and deed. We can be drawn near. Indeed, we can not just be drawn near as though he's pulling us to himself, but we can in ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the cleansing sacrifice of Jesus Christ, march into the presence of God. We read that in chapter 4, verse, verse 16, which says, On the basis of not having a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus is priest, you can go direct to God. You don't have to go to me. You don't have to go to someone else. You don't have to call in on some television channel. You don't have to write into a ministry. You don't have to send an email. You don't have to join a WhatsApp group or a Zoom prayer call. You can go straight to Jesus. You can go straight to God, the Father in Jesus. Because he is priest. Draw near to him. Draw near to God. But it, 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 while, while, while drawing near to the throne of grace, a throne occupied only by, 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 by God, we, we cannot do so in, in a spirit of, of presumption as though we deserve this. But we do so in a spirit of worship and humility because we're not the one who paid the price. Jesus did that. And yet we can enter with confidence. You don't have to be timid. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry about how you're feeling, what you're thinking at that precise moment, what you look like even. I, I, honestly, I, the stuff that gets out there that... that that has no biblical basis, but sometimes promoted by people who preach gospel truth. I saw something just this week where a man was talking about, you know, dressing a certain way because you have an audience with God. I'm sorry, the scriptures do not teach that. Okay, you should, you should be modest. You should, you, should, you know, but modesty also means you're not, you're not really thinking about that. You're thinking about God. And, and, and you can come into the presence of God as you are and call out to him where you are. We're not Islamic. We don't think you have to put on a special robe to pray before God. We don't think you have to take off your makeup and wash in a certain way and all of that to, to pray before God. But rather, therefore, brothers, we have confidence, since we have confidence, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. I'd much rather you draw near with a true heart than a coat and tie. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The thing is, all of this is external. I don't care. You can dress up or you can dress down. God doesn't care. What he does care about is what's going on inside. You can, you, you can show yourself externally to be a church person, a righteous person, a holy person. But if, if all of that's just out here, you are exactly the sort of person that Jesus said you're a whitewashed tomb, pretty on the outside, but full of dead men's bones. So let's get our priorities straight and let's draw near to God in our hearts. Drawing near to God in our hearts can be done anywhere, at any time, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with. Drawing near to God does not at first mean drawing to this place or to another place of worship. Uh, that's important. I'll come to that in just a moment. But there are plenty of people who draw near to the place of worship whose hearts are far from God. And so we must draw near to God. But also in drawing near to God, we, we find that we draw near to others who have drawn near to God. And so that is why it is important that you gather. I understand that those of you particularly who are watching this video um, may find yourself in a situation where you feel at present you are unable to gather. You are um, uh, perhaps still shielding. Perhaps you are um, vulnerable to um, sickness, or perhaps you believe that you would expose others to sickness. There's any number of reasons why you may not be able to gather. I don't want you to lean too hard on those reasons. I don't want you to overthink those reasons. I don't want you to needlessly extend and prolong the duration of your shielding. As hard as it is for us to accept, there has always been risk associated with our health and gathering. There's actually nothing new about that. What is new is this invisible and uncertain virus that is plaguing our world at the moment. So for now, the governing authorities have told some of you to shield, shield. But the time may come, and it should come, it must come, when you must regather. And, and, and that's borne out here in uh, chapter 10 still, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And that requires initiative, that requires creativity, that requires um, engaged critical thinking. And as we do that, though, uh, coupled with that consideration of how to stir up one another to love and good work so we don't just sit still and stagnate, but not neglecting to meet together. Some translations render that not neglecting the worship gatherings, the worship meetings of the church, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we, we, we look to Jesus as our priest, and because Jesus is our priest, 
we learn that we are priests. This is a concept that is as old as Scripture itself. The New Testament refers to us as a holy priesthood. And it is a phrase, the priesthood of the believer, that has um, uh, existed at least since the, um, the Reformation in the 1500s, when as a result of a special office and class of priests being set up within the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, th there was a, a necessary response to that, that no, you don't have an elite class of priests who perform certain ministerial duties. You have, in the leadership of the church, pastors, teachers, elders, servants called deacons, but all of us, all of us are priests. All of us are called to minister to one another. That's, that's something we do when we draw near. We draw near to God. We must draw near to each other. And that requires uh, being together physically, um, in the same space, sharing the same worship and praise and learning and discipleship and um, a mission together. Now that's very critical, and it's repeated multiple times throughout Hebrews, but there are others. For example, hold fast. Because Jesus is our priest, you must hold fast, particularly to the confession of your hope. And that, that essentially means proclaiming to church and to society who Jesus is and what Jesus means and what that means specifically for, to you and what that means for our world. Hold fast to this confession. Chapter 3, verse, verse 1 says that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And um, similarly, um, we read in, um, in, in th that's flowing from uh, verse 1, where we who share in a heavenly calling are called to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so as we consider the high priest of our confession, we hold fast to our confidence and hope in that confession. Also, chapter 6 um, verse 18 says that um, we have in, in, in we have fled for refuge to Jesus so we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, behind that veil that separated everyone else from the holiest place in the temple. We can go there now. We can enter into the holy presence of God himself. Why? Because of Jesus who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king, Lord and Savior of his people. Proclaim Jesus to church and to society and with all of the uh, winds and the waves and the changing and um, uh, ch changing tides and shifting sands of, of this world, hold fast.
we have an anchor. And as we hold to Christ, our anchor, he, he keeps us safe. He keeps us grounded, anchored, even in the, the fiercest of storms. These people were facing storms. They were uh, particularly, as they, they were, were suffering uh, from um, persecution, they were facing the strong temptation to return to the belief system with all of its laws and codes that they had left. And there's nothing for them there. But there was a strong temptation to go back to the way things were because the Christian life was difficult. Hold fast. Like I said last week, don't give up. Also, uh, coupled really with that is suffer well. Um, uh, chapter 10, verse, verse 32 uh, says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is when after you, you came to faith in Christ, um, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance." So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Endure through suffering. Chapter 13 uh, says in um, verse 12 that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He's talking about the sacrifices. They were brought into the holy places as a sacrifice for sin. They were burned outside the camp. Jesus was hung up on a cross outside the city. And now he says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. You say you follow Jesus. Where does Jesus lead? He leads first to a cross. So many of us want to fast forward through the cross. It's too violent, too depressing. We, we, we want to fast forward through the grave. And we want to get to resurrection morning. And really, we're like, well, we know the story of Jesus. We want to fast, and we love it, it's the gospel, but we want to fast forward through our cross. We want to fast forward through our grave. We want to get to resurrection morning. But before we get there, we have to suffer. We, have, we can't fast forward through it. We have to suffer well with Christ. Pursue justice. That's another application of this. Uh, Jesus as our priest has brought God's justice to us. He has satisfied God's justice, turning away his, his wrath, and he has administered God's justice on us because when the price is paid, it is unjust to require us to pay further. 
And so God in his generous justice has lavished us with love in Jesus who satisfies justice and justifies us. He pays the price and he lets us go because that's the only just thing to do. And as he lets us go, he not only um, uh, secures us with promises that the retributive justice has been satisfied, but he initiates us into a program of redemptive, rehabilitative justice all the days of our life as we grow as disciples and as we learn to obey all that Christ has commanded. In that life, he gives us every spiritual gift in heavenly places, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit to equip and empower and elevate us to a place where we, we, we now can obey. And what is that if it is not just? All-encompassing justice. We've, we, there's a problem uh, often in the church more than even than in society where people think of justice simply in punishment or something that's deserved. Justice is more than that. Justice is, 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 is righteousness. It's doing right. It's doing good. And we are called to live in justice and in righteousness. Uh, chapter 13 tells us that, that um, even as we uh, are looking to Jesus Christ as our priest, verse 16 says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Jesus did good. We didn't deserve it, but it was still good. He loved us, though we were evil. But that was doing good. And he shared what he had. He shared out of the abundance of everything that he was. And thereby made sacrifice. So let us do good and let us share what we have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And all of that is in the context of letting brotherly love continue, not neglecting to show hospitality to strangers, uh, remembering those who are in prison, um, letting uh, honoring marriage, respecting marriage, preserving the beauty, the glory, the purity, the righteousness of marriage, abominating sexual immorality and adultery. Um, that is justice. Do justice. Pursue justice. And finally, dear friends, worship, praise, and pray. Sticking there in, in chapter 13, um, uh, where he's talking about offering sacrifices pleasing to God, verse 15 says, um, through him then, through Christ then, through Christ our great high priest then, let us, we who are priests in Christ continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And there in verse 18, the author of this letter says something which should relate to all of us. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Praise and prayer are the irreducible minimums of priestly ministry. 
You can't be a priest if you're not going to praise. What is a priest who doesn't acknowledge the name of his God? What is a priest who does not offer up prayers to the Lord? We must praise God. We must give him thanks in the presence of the people and in, 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 in the quiet places. Uh, we must pray to him again together, one, one together, lifting our voices to him in prayer, one by one and alone or in our families. Just pray. It's so important that, that we realize that not only is Jesus our priest, but we are priests because Jesus is our priest, because we share in Christ, because we are united to Christ. And by being united to Christ, we're not only prophets, we are priests. Sometimes uh, people ask me, what do you do? And um, I, I tell them, I'm a pastor of a Baptist church and um, dealing primarily with um, people in a secular context, when I get asked that question, um, they, they, they say, oh, what, what, is that like a priest or something? And I answer, or something. You see, my task is to equip the saints, all of us, for the work of ministry. It's to equip those who follow Jesus for ministry. But what is ministry if it is not priestly? We are all priests. And I tell them that. And I'll end up having a 30-minute conversation with someone um, who's a total atheist about the priesthood of believers. All because they said, is that like a priest? It is. Yes, I am a priest. Yes, I'm answered to priest. But brothers and sisters, you are priests. I am not a priest by office. I'm a pastor by office and occupation. I am a priest by Christ. And you are a priest by Christ. And so you can go to God. You can gather with one another. You can hold fast to the confession of hope and faith as you stand before God. You can suffer well. You can pursue justice. You can offer praise and prayer where you are. And once again, even if for now you are far from us, you can draw near to God. And one day we look forward to when you can be with us again. A room of priests giving God the glory. That's good news. It's a great responsibility and yet a wonderful privilege. Let's walk in and out priesthood of believers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that you have um, instructed us from your word. Please take these truths and apply them to our lives. We pray that we would walk in the power of prophethood and priestly ministry.
And we ask, Father, that we would um, uh, do so uh, righteously before you. Your justice satisfied, our sins washed away. In Jesus' name.